All right, folks, Ghost in the Machine, that's from last week's our ET contactee, Merle Finkhauser, inspired to write music with uh, Lila, which was by Merle, M-E-R-R-E-L-L. He says Merle, Merle, like Merle Haggerty told me, and Finkhauser, and he was a guest last week. And now we have his ghost in the machine, and I couldn't find it, so I finally found a button that allowed me to turn down the music. So I guess we were supposed to hear that. Thanks to Janet Carolesson, who brings us all these wonderful people that uh, contact us about being a part of our groups. We have ACO Association, UFO Association, and I run TJ Morris ET Radio, and Janet Carolesson runs Aquarian Radio. Between she and I, we're putting together the Ascension Age and the Ascension Center and the UFO Association of people that are UFO enthusiasts. And one thing we found out is she and I, being contactee experiencers, have our own stories, and we've learned my mother's tale of we are all the author of our own life story, and she has agreed to help us book people to get the word out there that there's more of us, just not TJ or Teresa and Janet, so that's what that's all about, and that music, like I said, was compliments of last week's. If you'd like to hear that, you can come over here to Blog Talk Radio. And we have TJ Morris ET Radio here on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, FM Radio, wherever you like to hear your podcast, we're probably there. That's TJ Morris ET Radio. Also, Aquarian Radio, and Aquarian Radio with Janet Carolesson is in our Ascension Center, Maui, Hawaii. She calls the Tantra Temple as well. So please look those up, Aquarian Radio, and you'll see a lot more information printed out on AquarianRadio.com for Mike. Panicello, who's joining us on the first hour, and Ann Geckman, or Annie Geckman, the second hour, and they are both mutual UFO network members, so we're proud to work in association with mutual UFO network and have since we began this radio station in 2012, June 2012, with MUFON, when uh, the captain had it over here at the Dayton, Ohio area. Not Dayton, uh, Cleveland area, uh, Ohio, but uh, I think we're going to have Mike tell us a little more about that. But let me get my co-host and friend of many years in the UFO biz, Janet Carolesson. Can you hear me now? I can hear you, TJ, Teresa J. Morris. Exciting show today. Glad to be on again. Uh, We have uh, two wonderful guests, Mike Panicello. And if you want, I can tell you a little bit about Mike. I have his bio. It's a short bio, but, and he's got um, a lot of information up on AquarianRadio.com. We will get that information around to all of our various websites. I was still working on it this morning. Had some computer problems the last couple of days as well. But anyway, um, I'm over here in Maui, Hawaii, and TJ and I have been working together. Well, we start working back in the, early 90s and then we braided then we came back together and separated <laughs> yeah life kept taking us uh, round about and finding each other over and over again and so we finally decided to coordinate our efforts and we're doing group simulcast i will be putting this up on my network so by the time this show is done it's going to be dozens and dozens of places and we don't know how many listeners we have but we know we have a lot uh let me tell you about mike panicello He's been active in the field of ufology for over 20 years, first as a researcher and then as a member of MUFON. He was the state section director of MUFON's Connecticut um, 
uh, yes, uh, branch before being promoted to state director of MUFON. Okay, to the state director. So he was the state section director and the state director. Okay, sorry for the confusion. In Connecticut, my, I have a lot of ancestors from Connecticut. He's a member of MUFON Star Team and CAG International Groups, and he's a ham radio operator, and he operates a weekly ham radio net on ufology. He's lectured throughout the the state of Connecticut on a variety of UFO-related topics, including history of UFOs in Connecticut, past and present, what are USOs and USO sightings in Connecticut, what is cryptozoology um, and cryptozoology in Connecticut, and he's been in the state's largest newspaper, regional news, state newspapers, podcasts, and he has a B.A. from the University of Connecticut in History and Journalism, and a Master's from Trinity College, Hartford in History. So there's articles and a picture of him and uh, and more. So back to you, T.J. Thank you, Janet, and uh, glad to have you here at Weekly. And everybody, this is the time of season where I hope you're getting through the cold flu season, so I may be on mute a lot this program because of my uh, particular coughing episodes. So just to warn everybody in advance, this isn't the perfect show tonight, but we're welcoming MUFON members. And uh, let me get Mike Ma- Mike on here. Mike, can you hear me now? This is TJ, Teresa. Hi. Hi, yes, I can hear you. Thanks um, for having me on Good. the show tonight. I- thank you, and thank Janet for inviting you as well. So, Mike, uh, you, Janet has given us a front uh, page sort of bio on you. Now, I'd like you to introduce yourself and add anything, and then we'll get started on a quick interview and enjoy hearing what you've got to say about Mutual UFO Network and mainly yourself. So where do you want to start with who Mike Panicello is for the listening audience? Um, well, you know, I'm a pretty um, – you know, I'm not really – I'm not a skeptic, but I'm a real researcher, and when I look at – UFO sightings. Uh, I don't really believe in just jumping to the conclusion that it's a UFO. I, I have a very specific process that we use in MUFON to investigate a UFO sighting. Um, that frustrates some people, but I think what it does is when we talk about cases, and especially ones like in my lectures or if I um, on a podcast or something, you, you can be pretty sure that they are truly unknown. We've ruled out all the IFOs. And I think that's important to know about me is that I do try to make sure I do my due diligence in my research. I like to think that I have enough support behind it academically with evidence to to um, make a credible case. And I think that's important um, that people understand that about me, that they can um, understand who I am as a person that I, I do. I don't make wild claims. So I think that's, just what I like to always state when I start my lectures. All right. Janet, would you like to say anything, or are we going to just let uh, do a simple interview, or however you want to go forward with this, Janet? Well, how did you get into this, Mike? What, what made you get started? Uh, we find in our research that a lot of people get started in ufology because of some kind of critical incident in their lives. They saw something. And sometimes it's not conscious. Um, there's re- there are researchers that go many years until they 
you know, come up with, oh, yeah, I did see something or something did happen. But then there's some that never admit it <laughs> uh, or never access that information. So go ahead. Start. Uh, what got you started in it? What made you interested? I mean, there's a million things you could be interested in. What brought you down this road to <laughs> ufology? Well, what brought me into ufology actually was the TV show, The X-Files. Um, I liked it when I was a kid. I liked the idea of the storyline. But I also liked a lot of military aircraft when I was growing up. And I used to watch the Learning Channel back when Learning Channel was actually Learning Channel before it became just reality TV. And it had a lot of shows on, um, like, military aircraft. But it always wound up going to Area 51 and so, you know, the reverse reverse engineering of alien craft, like with the SR-71 or any of those craft that we have in the military inventory now. And I found that interesting, the link between, well, if there's these alien craft that came to Earth, they crashed, we took their technology, and we built our own aircraft from it. And so that started what got me interested in it. And then you know, the X-Files came on TV, and that kind of built onto that whole theory of, you know, we're, we're not alone in the universe, and there's this grander involvement with them on the planet. And... Um, you know, I, I kind of stepped away from it a lot for a while when I went into school. And once I graduated from college and I finished my master's, I started to have a lot of time on my hands again, and I really started to look into it. And then it was it was really just surface looking at first. But then, as you probably both know, once you start researching and, and looking into ufology, you really kind of go down the rabbit hole. And there's just so many branches to go into that, um, that I, I, I just became engulfed in it. And I... I I mean, the, the evidence and the, the, the theories out there and, and talking to people, I mean, it's, it's a very rewarding field. And um, I just, I can't imagine not doing it anymore. So it's definitely a part of my life. And now that I'm through that rabbit hole, I just, I'm never going to go back. Wonderful. Um, what's your first case that you really couldn't figure out that you decided it was a Unidentified. We had object, a case just like in the X. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, we had a case in in Manchester, Connecticut, which, if you were looking at a map, Hartford would be in the center of the state. Manchester is to the east, about you know a couple miles out. It's about a twenty minute drive. So that'll give you a reference if you're looking at a map to where Manchester is. And it was about. <coughs> excuse me. I have a little bit of cold, so. If I sound like I'm a little hoarse, I apologize. Um, so it was around 10:30 at night. Um, it was a two witnesses. One dropped off the father. They were coming back from a wedding, and the main witness, who was a younger gentleman in his 20s, or um, yeah, maybe late 20s, is probably a good way to say it to keep it general. <coughs> He um, he was driving in a part of town in Manchester that was very rural, uh, very empty at night. It's very rural, but it's 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 very empty during the day. There gets a lot of um, road traffic because it's by a major highway, but in the evening it's it's basically empty once the commuters have for the day. And he was at a stoplight and he noticed something out of the corner of his eye, and that caused him to to get out of his car. And you could do that, in, in, like I said, because there's no one around. And as he looks up, he 
he sees this triangle craft coming towards him very, very, very slowly. And he's watching this craft go. It's, there's no noise. It's completely black. Um, it's a traditional kind of triangle, you know, with the equal sides. <clears throat> it had the white light on each corner with the red light on the center underneath it. So it was, it was the kind of craft that everyone you get when you describe these crafts. It had no windows for a cockpit. So it looked like there was no way that like, someone could fly it visually. Maybe they were using some kind of, you know, closed circuit television, but there was no external windows that he could see on the craft. Uh, it was, like I said, it was very low. He estimates it maybe around a thousand feet above his head. And it goes from north to south. And as it's going overhead, it passes right over him. And as it's going overhead, he can get a closer look at the at the base of the, the undercarriage of the craft. And he doesn't see any rivets in it. It's not like if you look at one of our aircraft where you look, you see the rivets and the joints on an aircraft. There's nothing. It was completely smooth. And as the craft passes overhead, he still doesn't hear any noise from it. And he slowly watches it as it goes away and then just disappears over the horizon and keeps going. And, <coughs> excuse me, what was interesting about that sighting is, you know, Connecticut has very crowded airspace. If you were to go on like a website like Flight Radar 24 or any of those flight tracking radar sites, you would see aircraft all over the place. You know, they'd be going either into our airport, which is Bradley International Airport, or they'll be flying up the East Coast over to Europe um, or into Boston. So we have a lot of aircraft. The night of that sighting, there was no aircraft. And we, we pulled the aircraft logs um, for that particular night to see if it, we could identify if it was an aircraft. Uh, and for about a half, there was nothing in the skies in that area. It was like there was, not, there was just nothing. And that is very, very odd for Connecticut. And we tried to contact the appropriate authorities, and they just kind of gave us the runaround. Um, now there's some websites online that you can listen to air traffic, um, radio, uh, and that, what it is, it's a website called ATC live. It's a, it's collected by hams because air traffic is, um, on the open air frequencies. You can listen to that and they record it and then you can post it online. And we pull the air traffic audio for the surrounding area and there was nothing. It was, it was completely quiet for that whole time. Which, again, is odd because air traffic should be directing the aircraft inbound or outbound or transiting our airspace. So to have nothing going on that night was very weird. And we couldn't. And when we tried to make um, official inquiries, we, we got nowhere. We got stonewalled. So it was unique. And that was interesting also because, you know, Connecticut kind of falls into the Hudson Valley sightings. In the, in the 80s into the early 90s, where there was a lot of triangle craft being reported along the Hudson Valley, um, New York area, and along the Connecticut border with New York. But actually, we had sightings from there going all the way to like Hartford and East Hartford and West Hartford, so more towards the center of the state. And I've documented a few of those over the years of people saying that. So... Connecticut has a lot of triangle sightings 
during the Hudson Valley UFO period, they're our most popular sighting now. We're still getting reports of triangle sightings um, almost every month. And then we have this really good case. Now, this witness was a retired Marine Corps sniper. He uh, was in Iraq and Afghanistan, so he, he, he's a credible witness. Um, so there's no reason to question his knowledge of aircraft. He's been around aircraft being in the military, and he knew what uh, the aircraft were that were in our inventory militarily and commercially. So he was very articulate, and his story was very clear and precise, and he was very calm. So it's a really an unknown. And with the fact that the, the skies were empty that night of aircraft is also very weird. So it's a very interesting case looking at the history of Connecticut with triangle sightings. Um, the witness was very good. So, you know, it, it's something that, you know, we think it's, it's probably a very credible sighting. TJ, question. Now, how long have you been doing that? Because I had sightings in Rochester, New York with my children of a white light and two red lights shot out the top of it and one went towards the lakes and one went south. But that was in 1983 and I've been interviewed by MUFON that flew over to Hawaii while I was in the military Navy there to uh, talk at an event for them and I haven't really talked about it since except on radio. So how long, this was 83, were you, um, you look very young, but <laughs> how long have you been uh, in that area? And, and are you, you're probably 30 years younger than me. I'm 67, Mike. Are you in your 30s? No, I'm, I'm 39. So I've been involved with MUFON since, um, I think 2012 or 2013 I joined. And I've been looking at UFOs and studying them since I was like 19 years old. And then I really picked up, like I said, after college. So in my mid-20s, well, you know, maybe, yeah, so 18 or 19 is when I really got into it and started to look at it. And then I went, you know, down the rabbit hole in my about 22 or so. Um, so, no, I, I, I researched that. We did have a member who um, didn't was involved with the Hudson Valley UFO sightings during that period of time. He's no longer with the chapter, but he does recall a lot of a lot of sightings similar to what you had. And orbs coming out of triangles is also very common. I worked a case in Branford, Connecticut, uh, a couple months ago. It's it's relatively new. It was by a Branford uh, police officer who recorded a video of orbs in formation and they were moving towards the New York border. Now we didn't get any sighting reports along the New York border. However, that same night, the national UFO reporting center had a triangle craft sighting in Danbury, Connecticut. So it's possible that the orbs were going towards the, um, towards that triangle craft, but that's an assumption on my part. However, what do you there call are the black, do you call the black triangle a TR-3B, or do we use the uh, terminologies for our man-made? Because I know in uh, ufology, at least back in the 80s, we would use terms. But I've been in the <coughs> ufology business since 1967 when I was recruited in by our government, but it wasn't a known 
organization. We had to shy away from MUFON at the time from Wisconsin coming down into Texas. So there's a long history of people before, right, APRO and you know, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, Ph.D., I'm sure. Dr. Maccabee's got a late book. But we've been around for a long time. We just haven't been out there doing all this Internet and radio and all that. And so it's nice to see people your age coming in and taking on such a responsibility as a state director. So we all appreciate that because Janet and I pay dues here and there as researchers. But $5 a month here and there, but we don't pay our big 60 or 80 anymore like that. I, I got my last uh, – uh, investigator manual back in uh, with the captain, Captain McDonald, when it was down there around mm-hmm. Ohio, Kentucky, right on the line there. I believe that was uh, before Jan Harzan. Uh, but you were around then. You remember when uh, the captain had it, Captain McDonald? Had, the was, captain had is the, the one that promoted me to yeah, space section director. He was to, yeah, he was so sweet to me, very honest guy, a pilot, a lot of fun, and he and I discussed, because I was a law enforcement criminal justice investigator and worked for the government and Navy, so he was having me go through, uh, I bought the little manual, $75, you know, but it was being reorganized, and Kathy Martin was working on it for contactees back in the day, so that would have been 2007-8. What year did you get promoted? Uh, it was the last year that the captain was in charge. I think I wasn't in for very long. I think it was, God, I can't even remember now. I think Probably it was 2008. Because uh, James Carrion was let go. You remember James Carrion, the captain took over. Well, uh, I came in yeah. when the captain was the state director. I mean, sorry, when he was the um, national director. And he was just there for temporarily because no sooner did I get promoted that Jan Harzan took over. And that was 2015, so. wasn't it? Or, well, let's see. How long has Jan been in there? Do you know? Gosh, I don't know. I'm we're terrible with the now, folks. Yeah, yeah, me too. So, but we'll look at Jan. Uh, he may have taken over before 2015, but I know he's uh, going to come on the show and give us all his history. He stepped in uh, last week for 30 minutes or week before last. But uh, Janet can look that up for us and give us a history. But can you talk a little bit about MUFON, what you do know about it? Or Janet can, since you and the other girl coming on are representing MUFON for us. But uh, what got you into MUFON? Let's do it that way. What got you into MUFON? Did you research them? Well, what got me into MUFON was, like I said to mention earlier, I used to watch a lot of shows on the Learning Channel. And on those documentaries, especially when they start, I started watching the ones on UFOs, they always would have a, a MUFON member or um, someone in ufology, but they'd mention MUFON. And in one of the episodes, I remember they said it was the oldest, most known uh, UFO organization out there. And, you know, that kind of stuck with me. And then there was a show for a while. Um, I think it was like UFOs over Earth. Um, it was with the Pennsylvania crew, like John Ventry and all them, they were in it. And it was only a few episodes, and I thought it was very good. It was about, they were going through the process of investigating several sightings. 
Um, but that that was later on that kind of cemented it for me. But it was that original show, hearing about them either through a representative on one of these TV shows or someone who was a researcher themselves mentioning the organization. Great. Let me just mention that real quick. Mutual UFO Network is a nonprofit organization, folks. The Mutual UFO Network is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization in the United States of America composed of civilian volunteers who study alleged UFO sightings. Now, the headquarters that we're speaking about when uh, Mike came in and I was uh, part was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was founded in May 31st, 1969, and I was already in it back then through the NASA office. But we had CEO David McDonald from February 2012. So that's who we call the captain, David McDonald. And uh, now the location is moved to Irvine, California. I'd like to mention that the members were John Schusler, Walter Andrews, A-N-D-R-U-S, and Alan Utke, I don't know if I say that right, Utke, R-A-U-T-K-E, for those of you that are historians. So uh, we now have Jan Harzan that came in after Captain McDonald. There was James Carrion and uh, David McDonald and then Jan Harzan, who talked briefly a couple of weeks ago. So thank you, Mike, for representing Connecticut and letting us talk to you about Mutual UFO Network and responding to Janet's uh, request. I think you found her on LinkedIn. Is that how you found Janet? Carol Lesson? I think she here? contacted me through LinkedIn, yeah. Yeah, I, I contacted um, a bunch of people. I, I put in, you fought and came up with a bunch of people because we were talking to Jan Harson at the time. I said, well, I wonder who else may want to come on and talk about it. Um, so I want to get back to you, Mike, and so that was one of the how many cases do you think you personally have investigated and how many have panned out as being potentially real and how many did you like toss aside and felt like you might have wasted your time I think I've done I, I counted this out between the international cases I've done and Connecticut cases I've done about almost 200 that's a lot but you have to remember Connecticut I don't have a lot of field investigators in Connecticut, so when cases come in, it's I'm the one that's closing and investigating them. So just mm-hmm. by default, I get all the cases. So that's why my numbers are so high. Some state directors have a little bit lower numbers, but they have more field investigators that they send the cases out to. Um, of that, I would say maybe like 1% is something of, of value. I think that's what people get most confused on is that 99% of the stuff that they see in the sky is IFOs, man-made objects. You know, they're, they're planes, they're, you know, I had, I got into an argument once with someone, not an argument, I should take that back, but they were convinced that what they were looking at was a space station. And in fact, I, I showed them on a star chart that they were looking at Venus. Um, and, you know, it, it is what it is, but... Um, so a lot of them are man-made. A lot of them are just natural phenomena. I had one person that saw a rocket launch uh, because every now and again when they launch rockets from the Virginia coastline, along our coastline, you can actually see them. Very, you have to go to our coastline to see them, but you can. You can see a little tiny tail in the rocket going up. And I've had people um, send in reports saying that they've seen a UFO, but it was actually 
that particular rocket that was launching. It happens. So right. I think maybe about 1% or less is, is really something that's unknown, possibly UFOs. Do they uh, keep track of, of rocket launches? Can you, like, if you get something, you can look that up and say, oh, that was a rocket launch? Or is that all hidden information that you can't verify? No, a lot of, most rocket launches are, well, I mean, even, well, most, even a lot of classified launches, they won't tell you what's on the payload, but they'll tell you that the rocket is launching. I use a website, a lot of times it's called uh, spaceflightnow.com, which will list all of the, uh, all of the rocket launches for a certain period. Space.com will list it. If it's a more popular um, website, they will uh, actually have the news talk about it. So um, our local news might say, like, for example, something like that is pretty rare in Connecticut. So our local news will pick it up and they'll say, hey, if you go to the shoreline today around X time and date and look in this direction, you'll see a rocket launch. Um, So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty out there if you just look. Um, there are also a lot of amateurs, um, satellite trackers that have websites that will post like when certain satellites are coming overhead. So if you're interested in looking at satellites, that's also on the um, on the internet, like heavensabove.com or some of the other more popular satellite trackers. So a lot of this information is out there on the internet if you just dig around for it or the media. How do you it. how do you differentiate? our own uh, reverse technology off of the Black Manta or the Black Astra. They're called TR-3A and TR-3B. But do you keep up with all the man-made black? Because when I was, you know, in the business, watching the skies more, uh, we didn't know that we had them secretly. Well, some of us did. (laughs) Mm. Some of us did, but we worked inside the government. But, how do you handle that? Because we do have black triangles. We've always had, uh, I guess, mo- mainly you can say back to World War II and Hitler and all that, but that's a whole that's a whole story in itself. But where do you fit in? Do you actually say, no, that was actually a Manta or Astra? You keep up with all, like in the Air Force when I was training it in Colorado, they had to teach us how to watch the skies and what we were seeing, and we had to be able to call them off. Do you have that in your uh, area of expertise or how do we deal with the black triangles now in your field as a researcher? We, I don't have classified clearance or anything like that. And I don't have a a source that will tell me like, yeah, that's one of ours. That's not one of ours. Basically Uh, what we do is we tell them, you know, we'll tell the person, um, you know, this is what we know about the black, the TRB. This is what we know about the mana. Uh, it's possible that that's ours. It most likely could be ours. You know, with the Hudson Valley UFO uh, event, a lot of people thought that that was those were ours, especially with the triangles coming out of um, upstate New York. We're just honest with them. You know, we're all volunteers. Some people have access to to other sources, like maybe you because you're in the military. I don't have those access to sources. And so we do the best we can. We document the case. Um, you know, I tell them a lot of times, 
UFO only means unknown. It doesn't always necessarily mean extraterrestrial. And that's an important distinction. It's not one that people like to hear because they always want to think extraterrestrial. But even UAV, which is the more common term now in ufology, is unknown aerial vehicle. It's just, it's unknown because we don't have enough information to determine that it is an IFO. Uh, so we, we just, we be honest with the people, important part of this field, because once you lose your credibility and you get caught lying, you're done, you're cooked. So we tell them the truth, you know, we tell them this is what we know about what's going on in the U.S. military. You know, your deciding kind of describes that, kind of describes these craft. It's possible that this is what they are, but we can't say 100%, at least not in Connecticut. Somewhere else, like maybe you could say, yeah, that's probably ours. But like I said, you know, I'm just a civilian. I don't have the classified access to know that and though we do have a, a national guard in Bradley that's rather active um, they're not going to just tell me either if it's something that's classified well you were on the start team were you not did I read that or am I just making that up <laughs> if you no, were I, am on the star team. I was on the start team and uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a great team the idea of it is it is good and uh, I think it's an important asset that MUFON has, is, and uh, they should it, it, they should utilize. So um, I'm I'm a big component of it. I think it's a great idea. And uh, can they you do good work. Star team? Yeah. What is the star okay. team? What the is star the star team? Is, yeah, the star team is basically like I when I could do my lectures and people ask me what is a star team. I say it's like the best of the best. If you're going to have a a crashed UFO sighting in your backyard and you call up MUFON and say, hey, yeah, there's a UFO in my backyard. It's an alien craft. Can you come out and investigate it? It will be the star team that will go. They're usually the investigators with the most experience. They've done, uh, they're more senior than a lot of the junior investigators. They maybe had a little bit more training then the average investigator may be based on their professional careers or just that they take in more courses within MUFON to get trained a little bit better. Um, so that's really what the, the star team is. is they're, they're the investigators that are one step above the average investigator, but they handle more of the sensitive cases, more of the timely cases, more of the high-profile cases in conjunction with, with national I'm sure Jan can tell you a little bit differently, but that's the way I usually tell people what the start time right. is. You know what year they started? Because they had uh, Bigelow come in, Bigelow Aerospace, and uh, I think they offered them roughly 35000 I don't know for sure. Back in the day when I was getting involved, and uh, I know Bear uh, for Kentucky, the gentlemen, two gentlemen that were working in Kentucky, uh, Barry... Gaunt. Are you familiar with Barry Gaunt or, uh, of Kentucky? I'm not familiar but, uh, with Barry. Okay, that's okay. I'm sure that MUFON is huge with you know people all over the United States plus 43 countries, I believe, is what Jan mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know, but the STAR team, uh, do you know the history or what year? I'm asking you because I don't know, honestly, when the STAR team was created. I know they have a new patch for $9 you can buy. 
for the star team patch but other than that the area research uh do you know anything about when the star team began or is it on the mufon site maybe do they keep a history of the of this them on let's mention mufon what is it mufon.com mike where do they mm-hmm. where do we send people to investigate you can send them to mufon.com um if you go to our website, MoveOnCT.com, there's a link there as well if you're in the Connecticut area and you want to learn about our chapter. But MoveOn.com is the national website. And then they, if you are in a different state, they have a find your chapter by, by state and by country. So if you're like in Idaho or Nebraska or wherever, you can go on to the national website and then find your local chapter through through the national website. Do you know who handles the money that people pay in as members now? Is it handled? I out don't of, know uh, how that works. I, I okay. believe that goes through national. Folks. But you could yeah. talk to Jan about that. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, so we don't, you and I don't know. You remember the start team, but you don't know when they started that. Was it 2012? I don't know the exact year they start. I don't remember the – I don't know what – what I've understood about the creation of the star team, and I could be wrong on this, is they were started with Bigelow, but they are now – Bigelow got out of it. They liked the idea of the star team. And then they – when I got involved, they were trying to restart the star team to at least have one in each state. And the state director would be a member of the star team. And then after that, the state director would then find his his or her most senior investigators and put them on the star team. Okay. Well, that's good enough to start with. And folks, we'll do our best to get some historical documentation going on. It's From what I understand, the the few minutes that I was able to speak personally with Jan Harzan was that – they really only have him as one paid employee and an occasional office manager if he wants to cut her a check from what I understand. He or she, I'm not even sure which it is in California. So they do have a real office, folks. Uh, you know, I have a real office in my home for UFO Association, but it's just me. And then Janet's my co executive director in Maui, Hawaii, but we ran under. Ascension Center organization and the UFO I'm just coming out and bringing that we were always there we just weren't really allowed to let you know we were there (laughs) so I'm going to start a lot of controversy when I come out with my entire history and story but how we mix civilian contract wage grade GS all the joint chiefs of staff the allied command the supreme allied command and all of us have been working with all this in the air force the navy the marines and everybody of course we've all been out there but the civilian branch we like to call uh, nonprofits, and they work with very little funds. But Mutual UFO Network, after uh, APRO, I guess one might say, of Wisconsin, is probably the one that stayed in existence the longest. And so apparently they did set it up with a profit as a nonprofit in Wisconsin. So, and before that was a man and wife that had a very good idea, and that's the whole history behind that. But it's still in existence today. And the the name we mentioned was Jan Harzan, and he said he'd come on probably the first week of March, which isn't too far away. He's doing a couple of cruises. Uh, they're going out to speak, 
and they have various speakers on these cruises, one out of Florida and one out of San Diego. Are you going on that cruise, Mike? Or are you like us? We have to, no. We have very limited no. funds. We can't go do that. <laughs> be fun. But no, I have limited funds. I have other things I need to spend my money on right now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe someday. Yeah. I, I hey. do think it would be fun, but not right now. Yeah. Go ahead, Danny. I want to ask a, another question. Okay. So you're, you're investigating all these cases. And you said it's very interesting. So what keeps, like, how many come in? Um, do you go something every day? Does it take weeks before something comes in? What's your What's your life like, the MUFON director? Uh, my daily life with them. Well, so I run everything. So we, I run our monthly meetings every first Saturday of the month. And then during the warmer months, we do sky watches. And I run a book club and a net. So I always got something going on. So with regards to the meeting, my daily routine would be I'm booking a speaker, um, getting the notes for the meeting set, you know, what's going on in the way of upcoming events, um, things like that. The, for the once sky watching start, I'm sending out notifications for them, making sure the spot is available for us. Um, it's a lot of logistics I do. Or and, and of course I go to them, so that that takes up a lot of time. All these events um, with the with the net, the two meter ham radio net that I do every Tuesday evening. I'm running that, um, and if you you can see that, and I also broadcast that live, so I have to make sure that the webcam is set up and all that. With <laughs> regards to the cases, they come in at oddball times. There'll be a time when we'll get inundated with cases. They'll come like hot and heavy, two, three, four at a time. Um, and then there'll be times when nothing will come in. There might be one case a month. And once the case is assigned, I work them in order of which they come in. So if one will come in like on a Monday, I'll quickly send out an email and try and contact the witness through phone. And then if I can get a hold of them, great i'll set up an interview time to meet with them or talk to them and then from there i'll work through my investigator checklist and that could take a few days to a few weeks to get done and write up the report and then move on to the next one so there's a lot of logistics i do to make sure that chapter runs smoothly and that's always going on so every day i'm doing something with the chapter to get the chapter moving forward and then as with the cases like I said, they, they come in, they come in at weird times, hot and heavy, not so hot and heavy. And then I just work them. And then sometimes it'll take all 20 minutes. Sometimes I'm working them for an hour, depending on um, what I'm doing. It's it's not really consistent. It's just uh, the process. So what right. I think that always bothers that. All right, let me just say a second question, then back to you. Okay, one of the things that's always bothered me is um, certain people get uh, determined as credible witnesses and certain people get kind of like, well, they're not so credible. And it's based on, you know, their job or something. But, you know, anybody can. They call them crazy. Simple hat people. They call, or, yeah, you know, there's certain people that get honestly. called crazy and certain people go, they're, cred- they're credible witnesses. So how do we address this? Because it's very. Um, well, first of all, it doesn't really encourage people to come forth if they're having something go on. 
right? You know, when you're, right. you might uh, get the giggle factor and you might get ridiculed. So I think that we're missing the whole picture by having this phenomena that happens that people get determined as credible and other are crazy. So how is MUFON addressing it? I know they've opened up and they're doing more with experiencers. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with people that are having, you know, they're getting abducted by aliens? How are you addressing the experiencers in Connecticut? Well, you have two questions there. The the yeah. experiencers, we we interview them. We do refer them to the experiencer research team that's head by Kathy Martin and her team. And I know some of the members of that team personally, and they're they're a great team. Kathy runs a great show. Um, yes. She does a great job, and she is very professional. And I have nothing but high praise for her and her team. So I, I feel confident when I when I have an abductee and I direct them to her team, I feel confident that they're going to handle it appropriately, and, and they always do. And they have great follow-up with the state director after the case, so I have some kind of resolution to to the case. And so... They do a great job. Kudos to them. Um, when we get a case, sometimes I know I've worked a case before where Kathy will ask me to do an in-person interview. Um, they usually do theirs over Skype or phone, um, I believe, if, if they're not in the state. But, you know, I've done cases for them where I've gone and interviewed a person. Uh, so there, we, one way we handle that. As for the credibility question, I don't know how other investigators do it. I don't know how other state directors do it, but I can tell you what I do. I don't care what their job is. Yes, to a degree, you know, would a police officer over like a janitor be taken a little more seriously? Maybe, but that's probably because a police officer is a trained observer. They're trained to look at the details. I mean, what they're used to, what they do is they collect evidence. They observe details. They write it down because it's, they do it for their job. It goes to court and affects people's lives. Um, but that's not what I consider a credible person. When I look at a witness, I interview them a few times. And the biggest thing for me in credibility is, is their story consistent. People that lie can't remember their lies. It's a, it's a fact. You talk to them enough time, they start embellishing stuff. They start changing details. And if you take good enough notes or if you are observant enough, you start seeing that they're not telling you the truth. Right there, if you start catching them in lies, to me that ends their credibility. You, you lie once, you lie all the time. There's no coming back from that. How do you trust someone if you already know that they're lying to you? So that's the first thing I look for when I do a case, is, is when I interview them a few times, are they credible? Are they lying to me? Are they changing their story? Are they embellishing their story just for the sake of making it sound better? And you might say, well, how do you do that? Well, you can tell because all of a sudden things become grander, things become more elaborate than just story. Now, I get that people get excited and they get exasperated, and that's perfectly normal and happens pretty much with every witness investigation Um, because seeing a UFO is a pretty traumatic event for some it's a pretty exciting event for others and it's a just downright scary event for a few so you have to understand that that there are going to be emotions in their reaction but at the same time once if they're telling you the truth you can pretty much you can understand that they're telling you the truth 
that's the first thing I look at. Yes, we do look at their background, their educational background, and their professional background. <coughs> Excuse me. You can't not. Um, and like I said, would you take a trained observer like a police officer and put them a little bit higher on the credibility skill? Yes, because they do that every day. That's their job. Or a pilot. They are trained to observe the, the sky for safety hazards. They know what's in the sky. They're in it every day flying. Um, over, say, someone that doesn't do that for a living. But that doesn't mean that that, that, that person is not credible. Yes, I look, look at that. That's not the end-all, be-all. So I don't want to rule people out, and people shouldn't be ruled out based on their educational level, and they shouldn't worry about being, you know, exposed because MUFON has very strict confidentiality policy. If you come forward <laughs> and you don't want your name to be revealed, we won't reveal it. It's confidential. We will keep your identity secret. If we, if you want to reveal yourself, that's your business. If you go on the blog, like Facebook, and say, hey, I made a report to MUFON, and this is what I reported, well, that's on you. But we're not going to do that. We're going to keep your information confidential. What happens confidential. to your reports once they come to you in Connecticut and you're in charge of the state and the chapter? How do you uh, trace, like, finding a fact or chain of evidence? Is it by state to, it, to <coughs> the, the, uh, the uh, national level? I'd like to know because these are questions that were asked to me years ago that I'm thinking about doing a Gulf Breeze chapter or uh, running it uh, again. I did with, you know, Barry and... Oh, uh, the other gentleman, Janet, I can't remember his name, the guy that got us back together. Uh, it, can't uh, remember right now, it? yeah. Okay, well, anyway, so if uh, – I'd like to know because I don't really want to be responsible for the database, and uh, but we need to know because if people – like I gave some information to an ERT uh, person that I wished I hadn't now because I didn't like his attitude towards me, and uh, – there's a reason for that because people have opinions and everybody's entitled to one. I just like, you know what? <laughs> but uh, now what happened to my information once I put it into the computer and it was sent to this gentleman in Florida. So can I get my information back? Or once I put it in the MUFON system, it's gone. And where does it go? And what happened if I wanted my data back? Well, I'm sorry you had a bad experience with the ERT team. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, as for your database, the information, when we get cases, it goes into the case management system, which is a database run and controlled by national. And we input the data into there and it's stored in there. Now, how could you get access to that? You could ask Jan that question. I don't know. I, I would assume you could email or contact National directly, and they might have a step in order to do that. If you came to me in person, like if you were in Connecticut and someone and you were say, "Hey, I want to get a copy of my report," I would contact National regarding that. So I don't have a, a specific answer for how you would get that data. What I would say is is contact the National organization, either Jan or 
Marquetta, who is the office assistant, and see how um, what they would need in order to do that. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm still pro MUFON and UFO Association and all the people, whether they're in uniform or out, retired civilian, uh, veteran, you know, worked in around spacecraft or not of spacecraft or been contactees, abductees, experiencers. But what I've done is decided to get more involved rather than less after my experience because I realized that the information is extremely important. But we need more assistants, more administrators, more people that are serious about making this uh, uh, more of a professional peer-to-peer review group in the world, not less. So it actually inspired me. You know, wherever I'm like the prior military where instead of the problem, make the solution, right? And we are volunteers, just like you said, Mike, and a lot of us have more money than others to buy the equipment to do the investigations. And back when the captain and I were talking, you know, it sounded like it was going to be extremely expensive for me to get involved because before as an investigator, I would do finding a fact or do a JAG investigation and do on or about this such and such and then list, and then I got FBI reports in. So I understand the process inside the government. But outside, as civilians, we didn't have a strict enforcement, and especially since we're volunteers, nor were they willing to pay for my mileage or my gas or, you know, there was it was like it was going to be very expensive for me to go out in the mountains of Kentucky, and I would love to, but we were having right. trouble just getting people to show up to the meeting at the library monthly. So, it it was sort of right. a. a I, now I'm different. Now I realize we can do more together in the Internet. We've got our own cell phones. We've got our own laptops. We can use Skype or, like you said, set up live webcams. Everybody's going to their own YouTube channel now. The government has pretty much got us just like we were in the government. Now we're using civilian tools with Microsoft and Google. You know what I'm saying. Now we're all in mm-hmm. cyberspace doing it for free providing all this information and social media for free about us. It's made it a lot easier if you believe trash in, trash out, right? If people are being who they say they are, and that's been a problem only, is you've got to meet them, right, or to know. So it is a lot about discernment now in the UFO Association of all groups, whether they're military, civilian, contractors, uh, various nonprofits or profits, sole companies. And I work with various agents our consultants or organizers putting together events or doing fundraisers. And some of them in the metaphysical world have uh, crossed over and are starting to see UFO enthusiasts. I just was at a talk in January because I was a, a psychic reader, but they asked me to talk about UFOs, which shocked the heck out of me. But I guess because I had some UFO books out there. So you said you have a book club, and here's Annie. She's going to come on now. But I'll have you introduce yourself to her. But real quickly, tell me about your book club, Paul, and I'll get uh, Annie on here. Just mention your book club, please. Well, we meet the third Saturday of every month. We meet in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, We do a book a month, and the members vote on the book. So if you have an idea for a book, you bring it to the meeting, and then we vote on it. We try to go two months out on our book club. Um, in the way of books, this way it gives people time to purchase the books and to, or rent the books from the library or whatnot. 
We have a very small group right now for the book club, but it's uh, it's very intimate and cozy, um, and we have very good discussions, and we're all learning a lot. It's, we, we have genres from all different things. We do USOs, um, Roswell. I mean, we did a, we just wrote um, Van, Van Donegan's Tommy. So we try to keep it, it a variety of, of UFO topics. Well, thank you for that. I've got one I'm pulling together for a meetup group. I'm using meetup, and Janet is. uh, She started a New Mexico chapter, not just for books, but people to meet monthly. And I'd like to have you back, Mike, if it's okay, so we can get you more information. Yeah, Mike's coming on. Mike has part two, uh, the first hour next week, just to let you know, TJ. Mike is coming back next week. Yeah, Wonderful. So we'll Let's get Annie on here. Let me let him say hi to her. Janet, is that okay with you? Do you mind? Go ahead. You go ahead. I'm going to be on mute. Okay. Annie, hi. Just real quickly, I'd like you to say hi to Mike. He's Connecticut, and I'm not even sure what chapter you're in. So, Annie, introduce yourself, and then we'll have Janet read your bio. Can you hear me? Okay, what's happening? Uh, Janet, I can't hear her. I see her here, and she's on. Uh, Janet, let me uh, uh, keep talking with Mike, and I'll I'll text her phone. It, okay. Yeah, four eight zero. It's she's uh, on, but I can't hear yeah. her. Okay, uh, you got her off. Of, oh, she might be on mute. I'll keep talking she's not to on Mike, and I'll see end. if I can get her. No, she might oh, be on mute yeah. on her end. But go ahead, keep oh. talking. <laughs> I'll, right. I'll well, do the Mike, text stuff. Go it's ahead. Been a pleasure, and apparently no, you will be great. coming Thank back. You. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's great. I was just going to have you say to hi it. to another MUFON member. Yeah, but you know, don't let me uh, uh, discourage you in any way because I'm all about MUFON and, and the work. Like I said, it only inspired me that a, a person mis- totally misunderstood uh, me, and I was racing out the door, and because I had books. And I don't think he realized my age and that I'd been in MUFON years, years and years since, you know, way back when they started. So uh, I had run a history on the outside of MUFON, sort of an observer historian in uh, like Assured Confidential Investigative Reports was one of my companies. And, you know, American Culture International Relations. And I had a lot of people, a lot of groups, uh, advisory councils of the government and then working in the Navy in uniform into the president of the UFO during my age. Remember, us old guys, we were sort of the men in black, or women in black. <laughs> mm. So uh, yeah. we have a group. I'd like you to, if you're serious about uh, Mike, listening to some of the stories. We have UFO Secret Space as a social media group. And they like no, to talk I, I would about like all the to know more. things. Okay, great. I would like well, to we keep in touch a little more with you. Yeah, that would be great. But, you know, All right. well, you're, you're, with the... I'm sorry? Yeah, we have UFO Association, and I've got Jan and me on there right now, but I'll be more than happy to create you a page uh, if you uh, want to be in it. It's free. It's no charge. Yeah, it's which just, is, I only want be great, serious right? people. Yeah, and yeah, we have a lot of social that. media people, thousands of people. So I uh, just uh, – people you know? say, how did – how did they get in it? I'm like, well, they've known me since 67. So who, who are you? <laughs> yeah. How do I get access to it? So you do you email me? Oh, sure. Yeah, just, uh, well, right now, UFO Association's recreating itself after 50 years. But, oh, uh, okay, so you'll just email me the information so I can get on and 
talk with you? Well, guys? there's nothing to get on right now. I'm rebuilding it, but uh, it's oh, UFO okay. Association. But oh, you mean oh Facebook? Yeah, well, just go to UFO that. Secret Space Command. Well, I'm, I can hear it. <laughs> that sounds funny. UFO Secret Space Command. Okay. Uh, okay, Annie, is that you? Did, did I hear somebody? Yeah, we're getting some feedback. Is that Annie? I'm getting like somebody else's household. I only hear your you and somebody Annie's in the background. Phone? It's not mine. I'm, I'm hearing nobody's Okay, here. that must be Annie's background. I'll, I'll call yeah. her. Okay. Keep, All keep right. talking, TJ. All right. Well, she's on live. And Mike, uh, you know, there's so many people out there that I've met, and some uh, like to join MUFON and put in their money and do the research, and some don't, but they're still enthusiasts. So what's happened is in my metaphysical groups and psychic groups and like people like James Van Prague and people that John Edmonds, these are people that, you know, that do more of the consciousness, ESP, uh, parapsychology, and psychology and philosophy. And I was interested in that while I was going through law enforcement, criminal justice, right? But I had to make a living, mm-hmm. and my teacher says, you can't make anything in philosophy. So they discouraged me from signing up in philosophy. But they did let me take a couple of psychology courses, you know. And I really loved psychology. I loved to know people and how they worked. And I had all this death and dying in my life. Uh, when I was in the second grade, and then when I had my daughter. Yeah, she dropped off. Try again. She'll have to oh, come back on. Now? She dropped off. No, she dropped off. Oh, okay. I'll call her back. So okay. we were on. Keep talking. But she was. All right. Well, keep talking. I think that means so we don't have dead air time, Mike. But anyway, That's so fine. what's happening? No I have uh, the ACO Association, which I, I take more uh, as a government contractor type of integrative medicine, where my daughter has leukemia, and she just got a report on her. After two years, of she's gone full-blown 100%, so she'll be passing here in the next – we don't want her to, but next couple of weeks or so. But she's walking and talking breathing like you and me, but it's unfortunate for me to have her like that. And so it's really taken me aback because we've been doing this for two years, but she had a bone uh, – transplant from her son but it didn't take very well and then anyway it's a long story so what happened is sorry death and dying. yeah it's really a sad situation so what's happened is it makes us very conscious that we're only here for a short time i've lost my parents and my husband since i've been working in radio and it's very sad uh that i've had a radio show going with all this going on but the death and dying and feeling that we're our souls go on and we're immortals. It has to keep us going. We have to have a faith and belief. And some people with UFO business, they don't know what they're seeing, and, and it was important. I almost didn't use the word UFO because it was so uh, uncouth and so unappreciated during my lifetime. But it seems mm-hmm. to be the only one that keeps people Together, because we all know we grew up in a time when they went from flying saucers to UFOs, although some of us knew it was anomalies or unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, and now, like you said, UAVs, right? Let me see if I can get her on there. There's two numbers. Yeah, she came back. She called back. All right, there's two phone numbers here. Let me see which one. Now, this is the 5504. Is this Annie? Hello? All right, let me try this one. Five nine hundred. Is that better? Yes. Yes. The five four five five zero four is my husband calling in to listen. 
Okay, oh, well, I'll put him okay. on hold. Now, that's why we, okay, so we've got you on. Now, Annie, this is Mike. Mike is hi. in hi. fine business. Hi. He's, oh, hi, Mike. Yeah. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Although we have a big storm going on up here. Oh, so, yeah. other than that, we're fine. Just unusual for us okay. to get small. <laughs> That's the right. yeah. well, radio. Uh, They're after us. <laughs> Annie Geckman. Yeah. Is that yes. Annie Geckman? Now, where are you in MUFON? He's in Connecticut. He's the uh, executive director, or no, just director for the state. Is that right, Mike? How, how do we say you're I'm MUFON the state director? director. State, state director, director for Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. And Annie, um, where are you? What state do you represent? I'm in Arizona. Arizona. And I'm just a peon amongst them all. But uh, okay. with, well, with a background, with a background that's a little more unusual than most of them. So. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And Annie, uh, we hope to have you back. We're definitely going to have Mike back in another week. So, Mike, I'm going to let you go. You're welcome to hang on and listen. But we're going to give Annie the airtime now, Mike. So you're welcome to hang okay. around if you want to hear her story. I'm just going to have to mute you. So thank you, Mike. We enjoyed it. We had thank you. Enjoy having you back. All right. Okay. Thank See you. See you soon. Take care. All right. right. Janet, last word to Mike. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hi. Uh, hi, Annie. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we're going to start with uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself. Let me see what you wrote. I'll give an overview, and then we'll pass the talking stick to you. So you had experiences that began before birth and didn't know about them until you were in your teen years. And then somebody told uh, you yeah. about the hybridization program. Uh, yeah, actually, so at three. Not, not I, I was experienced from birth uh, because of how I became what I am. Uh, but at three years, my mother took me to a special playgroup. And if you have the script in front of you, you see when I'm going on that. And yeah, well, why don't you just start from the beginning? Yeah, and then we'll we'll listen for about ten fifteen minutes, okay? And then we'll ask okay. you questions. Well, that, that's Go what ahead. I'm doing. Then I'm just I'm doing the chronological. Uh, okay. So at three years old, she used to take me to a what was supposed to be a, a special playgroup for a, a playgroup for special children like me. Well, three years old, like me, means oh, other three year olds. That's good. Uh, and it, it went on intermittently uh, over a few years. But it didn't turn out to be that. I mean, it was for our children that had been identified as having uh, greater abilities uh, intellectually and otherwise. And as it turned out, as I learned later on, uh, when it became when I became aware of it, uh, we went to a disclosed location, but was really undisclosed because from there. There was a group of us, whoever the numbers were, uh, apparently we were taken to the ship where we were educated during these sessions. And uh, it took place a few times a year. And ironically, not too long ago, uh, in fact, several weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine that's also involved in the industry. And we got to talking, and I was telling her about that experience. And she said, oh, my Lord, Annie, she said, I think we were in the same group when we were both three years old. We were both the same age. And it was just an interesting uh, awareness on her end because we had never discussed it before. And um, 
so here I, I've been friendly with someone that is going through a lot of the same things as I am, but we also, we don't know for a fact that we were in the same group, but she lived near me, and her mother took her the same way my mother took me, and we dropped off, and we were wherever we were, and it appears that we were on the ship, and uh, I, I, I've been fed information by my family, not not my human family, but uh, over over years as I grew and they felt I was at a point where I could handle information. And as I became more consciously aware and, and exoconsciously involved, uh, more started coming coming to me. So that's, that was the main thing when I was three years old. And as I got a few years older, uh, it I, I knew things that there was no reason for me to know at the ages of four and five and early years of six years old. So I just accepted it. it. You know, it was part of who I am. And although I didn't know who I was at the time, certainly. Um, when I was six, my brother and I were put into a private school in Tucson. My mother had health issues and had to go out there. And during the stay there for a year and a half, two years, the whole school came down with measles, but I was the last one to come down with them. And I was in my bunkhouse, in the bunkhouse, in my bunk bed, all by myself. It was perfectly quiet. And I'm just looking around like, like a child of six does, six and a half, six years old. And all of a sudden, there were three beings at the end of my bed. And I wasn't scared. Uh, I had no reason to be scared. I guess I felt as if I'd known them. And they... they thought I might be, so they telepathically started communicating with me, and they said, we're here to let you know this is who we are, and we've been with you since you were born, and we'll continue to be with you the rest of your life. We'll educate you, train you, and keep you safe. Well, that's when I became consciously aware of what was going on. I was never scared. I was never concerned because they had already started apparently talking to me, but consciously I wasn't quite aware of really what was going on. You know, I was so young. And and then after they engaged with me that way, they said, we'll see you soon, and they disappeared. But ongoing telepathic communications continued, and now that I was familiar with that, I could now listen and react or respond accordingly. Before that, I was just hearing things, and I had no idea where they were coming from, of course. Uh, so they, it turned out, you know, I understood who they were, and they were always guiding me, and they were keeping me safe. So, you know, I have to say that at six years old is when I became conscious and consciously aware and, and maybe partly exoconsciously aware at that point. So there I am at six years old, starting to learn more about myself, never questioned it. I didn't have the whole picture, however, because they're telling me they were with me since I was born. So that's why I say they've been with me since I was born. Um, the, the next few years were pretty static in terms of anything unusual. And I realized later on as I did, as I retrospectively look back on things, um, you know, I, they, they still had to allow me to grow and develop, but they were always with me. Things would happen. They protected me. Um, they kept me out of trouble. And I was a pretty active kid, so I guess maybe that was a little bit of a chore from time to time. But they always seemed to manage. Uh, 
in keeping me on this, this straight line and, and developing properly uh, and gaining me more and more awareness of everything around me, but more importantly about me as an individual with different capabilities because I always knew things, as I said before, I had no reason to know about. I certainly never just learned anything in science when it came to, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. And uh, when I got into junior high and seventh grade, uh, I never had any interest, at least awareness of things like astrophysics. But then when I was 12 in seventh grade, there were two things that took place that were very unusual. The first one was could have been a very negative situation, but they actually, my beings actually protected me on this one. And we were, I was staying at a friend's home while my, while my parents were away, and I was, I was waiting for the bus to go to school. And uh, a stranger drove by and talked to me as if he knew me. Well, I was pretty naive and uh, offered me a ride to school, and like a, an idiot, I accepted then while he was driving me to wherever he was planning on driving me, I got, I got telepathically communicated to get out of the car as soon as I could. While I had already learned to listen to those messages, and I managed to start fidgeting and getting scared and getting upset, and I was going to start screaming, he dropped, and then he, got, he stopped the car and he dropped me off, and that was it. And it was fortunately to be close to the school, so I walked the rest of the way. It was a hard lesson to learn, but I was safe. And until I heard them, my beings talking to me, my family talking to me, uh, I don't know if I would have been that safe and protected without that because it happened, and then I took action. They had already trained me to listen. Um, the other one was quite different, and it was back in school, and the English teacher in seventh grade wanted us all to do a book report in any book we wanted to do. And I went to the bookstore, I went to the library, got a ride, and I started perusing books, and I looked at novels, I looked at social studies, I looked at other things that could have been of interest, and nothing was there, and I moved over to the science area to see what was there, and I was already interested in space, uh, astronomy, and planets, and never studied it, but I had developed an interest in it, don't know where it came from, but I had an interest, and I went over and I was thumbing through, and I saw a book, and I picked it out, and I thumbed through it, and I said, yeah, this looks good, and I read it, and I could understand some of what I was reading. And long in the story, I, I read, took the book, the book and uh, did a book report and got an A-plus on it, and the teacher wrote back, please see me. And she asked me how and why would I have selected that book without any background, and I said, I don't know, I thumbed through it, I understood it, it was interesting to me, so I read it. And it was Einstein's theory of relativity. So the next thing I knew in school, I, I have a feel. I, I was, I was, they were putting me into AP classes at that time, advanced placement, and they wanted to. I don't know why I wasn't, but there were a few courses, simple courses that I was moved up into. So as I got further and further into high school, I got through high school and I, I was fine because some of my I had some co- I had two college courses before I graduated. So by the time I got into college, uh, studying the courses that I had to take as a pre as you know the, the the basic courses, I was bored. And 
the second year, after my second year, I pretty much dropped out. I wasn't interested because I, I wasn't learning anything. And so I considered the studies on my own. I continued to be educated. Occasionally I'd, I'd be taken. Um, you know, it happens when I'm in, in sleep at night usually, but it wasn't a lot. It was just intermittently because I still had a life that I was building. And, uh, and I went on from there. And things continued to be a little bit normal between 12 and 17. But, uh, and I enjoyed my teen years. Um, I, the, the one thing I always ran into was when I was delving in conversation with my peers age-wise. Conversations were always boring to me. No one had an interest in what I had an interest in. Space and space sciences, as we knew it in those days, uh, planetary, you know, the science and universe and all that. And that's where my mind was a lot, along with other things, but pretty much into those fields. So it was difficult to have friends of my age because no one had an interest there. They were interested in boys or girls or whatever, and, uh, you know, I had I had boyfriends and girlfriends, but I had to be careful with my conversations. So that's how it went through my teen years, and uh, as I said, I went to college, and after two years, I was really, I was just bored. So then uh, life continued, except that in my early 20s, I had the pleasure of meeting my husband. Someone introduced us. I was on contract. Uh, onto the company he was a part of from the company I was with, and I was in computers and uh, systems systems analysis and programming at that point. And I was kind of guided into those areas, into the sciences and technology, so I followed those. And uh, when I met my husband, I was introduced to him. It turned out he he did contract work for NASA. So I said, okay, this sounds like it's a possibility for me. And long story short, we dated six months, and then we got married, and we're married 50 years now. So I guess it worked out. Uh, he's worked an individual. out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's highly intelligent. And we have incredible conversations. He's interested in, in everything that I'm interested in in those areas. Uh, I'm interested in business because I did land up being in business and went into the executive suite eventually. And so we have a lot in common that we can share with one another. On the on the funny side, funny or not, he never knew about me. I never said a word to him, but I exhibited abilities. He couldn't understand how I knew about people that were up to no good that wanted him to be a part of something. And I told him, vehemently, you're not to do business with him. You stay away from him. Long story short, we, he finally decided not to because I, I was furious about it. And they came to no good a year or two years later. So he, he said, how did you know? And I said, I can't tell you that, but someday you'll know. And there were, there were some other mm-hmm. situations that took place through the course of our life together. And fortunately, uh, I, I, I love him a lot, and, and the feeling seems to be mutual, fortunately. And eventually, he overheard after a MUFON meeting, he overheard a conversation I had with another experiencer. Now, he never knew about me being an experiencer. So on the way home, he said, tell me about what you're talking. And I filled him in. I said, well, this is the first part of my story. Now, he never knew any other part of it until last February. So he knew I was an experiencer. I gave him time to understand all that. And our children never knew. 
And I finally told him that, I think it was around last spring, we need to get both children together so we can start giving them some information about me because there's it, always a possibility it may affect them in some way. And right. there are two children, our two, two birth child, children. And um, so anyway, we, we, we had an opportunity to do that. The reaction was different from both, and it's what I expected. Uh, and it's interesting situation. I said to one of the children, and I said, you may not be aware of it, but I track you, and you have some abilities that I've got. I can't say or will I say how much you've got. That's for you to determine. But learn to listen, and you will make you will come about eventually and see what's going on. But it's all good. Nothing is negative. Nothing is bad. So we went from there, and uh, life has gone on. And uh, except for one issue, when I became, we got married in December of that of the year uh, in question, and the following spring I got pregnant. And I went to the what year was that? Let's slow well, we this down a little 60, bit. We were we were married in December '68, and, and you have to speak the spring, into the mic because you're fading in and out. Speak into your phone. Because you're fading in and out. Is that better? Is that better? Yeah, you got to stay. Yeah, stay conscious I'll of that. Is that so let, me, let me slow this down. Yeah, that's better. Let me slow this down a little bit. Um, okay. We have questions now, so sure. let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> so you're sure. you're three years old, and your mother has you go to this special class. Um, were there other children in there? How many were in there? Um, do you recall anything out of the ordinary? I know you were three, but a lot of people have good memories, especially when it's something out of the ordinary. What What do you recall about that? Well, slow it down. Okay, uh, and I've made an effort to recall as much as I can. Uh, I do not. Re- I remember being dropped off. I remember her taking me into this building, and I remember initially seeing several children. There weren't. I don't think there were more than maybe five to seven of us at the most, and. With all my recollection, and I have been regressed, but with all my recollection, um, not, I, I cannot remember anything taking place in that classroom. And it wasn't until a little, not too long ago, as my, my Bing's family are filling me in about things, and I question everything to them. And it's their decision when to let me know. And it turns out we were being taken to the ship. So they they erased our memories after they they sent us back, and we were brought back in whatever time frame. We have no idea about the time frame. And my friend, she's gone through the same thing, and has no recollection of what and where. But they told me that they were educating us, and they do it in small segments. You know, at three years old, how much can you retain? But they were teaching us things that would come back to us as we got older. Apparently. Um, you know, I have no other re- no other validation of that except what they have been very good about educating me about, and it. I, I don't have anything else to go on except how I knew things when I never studied things in school to this nature or to this ability. I, you know, I didn't. We never studied space sciences until high school. I never studied other aspects right. medically. I I had an uncanny ability 
to understand science, technology, and medicine, which is really interesting. Uh, I could, someone would, they had, there was a problem one time, and I didn't record this, but a, a problem one time, a friend of mine was upset, and I met her one night just to say hello, and she was upset, and I said, what's going on? And she told me about her best friend's boyfriend that was sick, and they can't find anything wrong. So I asked her for information, and I questioned her for about 10 or 15 minutes. And she said, why are you asking me this, all these questions? I said, well, you're not going to understand how I do this, but while you're telling me, I am seeing exactly what's going on. And she said, well, what are you seeing? I said, what I can tell is there's a tiny hole in his heart. And he needs to get to a cardiologist right away and get this taken care of. And she, I said, make sure you tell your girlfriend. So she did. And then she saw me about three, four weeks later. And she said, how did you know? And I said, how did I know what? And she said, about my girlfriend's boyfriend. I said, all I can explain is why you were explaining it to me. I'm looking inside and I can see what's going on. As long as he's fine, she, he, she said yes, and the doctor told him he was very fortunate to come when he did before it got worse. So, I, I, you know, I continuously learned about what I do and how I can do it to help people. It's, if so I read let people, me ask you something on that. Yeah. Let me ask. Sure. So do you think that you were, like, somehow enhanced Um. Are you a hybrid? Yes. And so how do you know that? Okay, so tell us. I was told. I was told. And as I am advised. Who, t- who told you that? Who told you that? Well, my beings, my beings that- for one, and then, and then through research and understanding of how things evolved as a child, uh, I've put two and two together after a while. My dad was doing work with the government. Now, he was born in 43, and within that early 40s time period, uh, there was a hybridization program, and people were being asked, for whatever reasons, how they selected the people. I have no idea. But my dad was already involved in doing some work with the government. And apparently, as I am advised, and, you know, I can't sit here and write an affidavit. I can only go by what I'm told. And also there are other things that have proven it at this point. But uh, my dad apparently had been asked, and my mother became pregnant, and he, got, he was asked, and he said yes. So everything took its course on that basis. And, uh, and then, the, you know, I, got, I was born. But what was interesting my entire life, which I could never understand, my dad could never ever put his arms around me he could never give me a hug and he was never able to tell me I love you now I'm his daughter and as I learned how other fathers reacted with their daughters it wasn't normal but uh, I went on with my life I didn't let it be disruptive I had a very good upbringing I had uh, never really needed or wanted for anything. So I was, you know, my dad was very successful, but I always thought it interesting. He could never tell me he loved me or never put his arms around me in particular. So I just had to go on that basis. And then I started getting information. The fact that he was doing work for the government, his work for the government increased as I got older because he was new in the industry that he was in. And then as time went on, he 
you know, went through the bidding process, but he was getting more and more more contracts with the government. So you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and it, it starts to make sense on that basis. What verified the hybridization is when my DNA had to be done uh, about 12, 13 years ago. My DNA can't be read. Can't be read by the hospital mm-hmm. I was sent to. Oncology spent six months taking my blood every single month. They've never been able to read my DNA. Ancestry.com I took as a, as a lark to think what would happen. They couldn't read my DNA. What ha- no, tell me what they, what, did they, what did they say when they, they got your, because uh, TJ's daughter went through some of this stuff. And TJ, you can share. What was going on with your daughter's blood? Oh, I have no are idea there, about my TJ? daughter's blood. This is my, this is no, my talk, no, no, no. I'm talking about Teresa. Are you there? Because she had oh, a yeah, she, puzzle. Well, she's found out she's 100% uh, reading in her bones now, leukemia. But uh, when they, they could read it as far as how do you read DNA, but uh, they found out that she had other than, and she wasn't really, uh, she's classified as other. Uh, it's almost like being non-human. <laughs> so uh, there's exactly. reasons for that. So uh, yeah. I imagine it's something similar. They don't tell us the details, Janet. Just uh, they kept the questions the doctors were doing for us in Moffitt Cancer Research Hospital and telling us and mm-hmm. asking me about if I was an alien or something, and they were serious. And I was like, Did well, they say well, that? Sort of, Are you an alien? Yeah. Did they actually use yeah. the word alien? Oh my uh-huh. God! Wow. Really? They never wow. did that with me. They just told they me I had an anomaly that looked like cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, presuming there was cancer in my blood, and they couldn't tell what type of cancer, so I had to go to oncology, and it was in a major hospital facility, and six months in a row, there they can't read my DNA, but they never said I was alien or they. I knew about myself at this point, but I, how could I tell them? What am I going to say to them? Do you want to, you know, people don't even understand the word experiencer. So how am I going to tell them that I'm a hybrid? They don't even know what that is. So it's, it's one of those things you live with and you deal with. It's not like I can go and talk to anybody I meet about this. It doesn't make sense. And uh, what did you tell them? Did you did you say I'm an alien, or did you say it's a mystery to me? What did you say to them? Me? Because that's the first type of like, yeah, like well, I yeah, to are you asking me or TJ? Piece of the puzzle. I'm asking TJ, and it, because it's okay. tying in with yours, so they didn't ask sure. you if you're an alien, but your people they wanted asked to know how you. I created my daughter. They wanted right. to know, and I I said, so what well, did you God. say? I said, God. I said, well, God. They're like, no, seriously. And they were asking me very uh, – it wasn't the normal, you know, in the office like you pr- – it was in a – you know, I mean like a doctor's office. We'd already left the doctor's office and gone down. But, see, we'd been used to this because it started in 2016 and then 2017. But the questions they asked were doctors that came up from like uh, Brazil where – Gigi was part Brazilian, so they had a doctor come up. It was all uh, – we were working around Nordics, what's called Nordics, and the lady that was Nordic 
And then I, I said, well, I've been told that, you know, I'm, my name is Thurmond, and I'm, uh, that means Thor's protection. And from Thurmond was Thurber, and from Norway, and we we're Nordics. And they were like, yes, we're familiar with the Nordics. And they asked about most of them are German and want to know our German descent. I said, I've never heard of any German descent of my family, only Norway from my father's side. But we were English, and my mother's Bolton. And so they went through the basic that you asked, but then they were like, above that, above you know, what's your family genealogy? They were like, now, but what are you? You know, so they wanted to like, do you, they were good, basically asking me, you know, are you from an, another place, not here? Or, or do you know of, uh, and, and I was like, yeah, like, you know, what are you talking about? He says, like, alien. I said, well, I always heard that, that we were. And uh, they said, I was like, why are you asking me how I created my daughter? You know, my daughter was very embarrassed sitting there and didn't want me to talk. She was so embarrassed because she didn't want to – we've had this problem, you know, in the family with my husband because I believe you had to have, be married to have sex. So it was very personal. It was very deep, and it was very confidential. So uh, but I said, yeah, I believe that I had her differently, and I did die when I had her, and I think it was somewhat of an experiment that I wanted to have brown-eyed, blue eyes, and brown hair, blue eyes, and I created this with my mind. And, you know, yeah, I believe that we're – somewhat of an alien DNA, and uh, but it was extremely important to them, but they've dropped her now because she's 100%, so now they'll do is she goes, starts a new regiment on some strong cancer in her, them to give her by two weeks. Right now she has blood coming out of her eyes and ears and nose and just trying to oh. stay alive two weeks. Oh, I'm and, so sorry. Yeah, it's uh, she was that. an experiment. She accepted that she was. She knows she was ET and uh, an avatar. She was born with a tail, and uh, she's related to the movie yeah. Avatar. But it's unfortunate that the government spent all this money in her and me both. And when I was born, you know, I knew I was extraterrestrial or had a other family, but it's just we never talk about it. So what's happened now in 2019 mm-hmm. with the realization of – Losing my husband that was E.T. hybrid, and then me knowing it, and my child losing okay. her to coming in wanting to fight cancer when we knew we had cures for it. But that was her mission, and uh, it's unfortunate that I've got to go through this now, and I don't know why I keep going through death and dying firsthand to be there. But uh, it's a whole other show and a whole other story. But the next two weeks, I don't even know yeah. if I'm going to do radio shows. But it does have to do yeah, with what we're creating here. And the positive side is we yeah. come here, and we're all blended together for whatever reasons, and we take with us what we can accomplish or learn in a physical container. So, uh, you know, we all have mm-hmm. our part. We all have our gifts. And for whatever reason, it's very unfortunate because she really wants to live here. But she knows that uh, she's immortal, and we're only passing through here. We call this the bus stop of the galaxy, you know, yeah. for those that blend. Yeah. Yep. So back to you. So Janet just wanted to know more about the reality that doctors I, are yeah, dealing I with people. Yeah, I just thought that was. Yeah, I thought that was an important key because, you know, I like to put the pieces of the puzzle together and try to figure out the commonalities. So you're, you're having this experience, and, and uh, Teresa's daughters have that experience. Okay, so go on to the. Um, let me see. Next part. I, I got confused about where I was. <laughs> So let's go back in time because you were in school. You you were told this about your 
DNA. How old were you when that happened? Confused about your blood. I'm talking back to you now. Okay. Yes, back to you, Annie. I want to make sure. I did want to say the name. Yeah. Yeah. So back to you, Annie. So you were how old when they were telling you this stuff? On you mean on the DNA in in general or or just overall? Okay. Uh, well, it was, um, I'm 75 now. I'm very active, very healthy, 75. So we're going back, uh, do the math, back to around uh, 2005, roughly. And uh, so whatever that is, I was about in my early 30s, maybe, no, 40s. I was probably in my 40s uh, when the DNA first became apparent, 40s, somewhere in my 40s. And no, maybe fifties, yeah, late forties, early fifties, I guess. And the but the other thing that happened when I was twenty six, so I can finish that part. Uh, I got pregnant in the spring. I was sixty nine. The doctor confirmed I was pregnant. Everything seemed fine. I went back for my third, my my first trimester exam. Doctor said, "Where's the baby?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "You're not pregnant." Well, turned out I was used as an incubator for a baby. And now, the, the, and I always asked, I, I, I realized what happened because I didn't bleed or anything. It was, you know, they just took the baby from me at two and a half months. So uh, I went on. I did get pregnant again about uh, maybe nine months later and uh, had our first daughter. But I always ask, what happened to the baby? What was it? How, you know, the baby, et cetera. Now, can I jump ahead just to a few years ago for a moment and sure. then go back again? Sure. Uh-huh. Uh, I was at the, I was at the, the MUFON Congress, and uh, there was a, a talk on Meet the Hybrids. And a young lady walked up onto the stage. And I'm not going to use names, but I, I know she is. And uh, when she walked up on the stage and approached the dais, speak about her life my beings loud and clear said this is the child you've been asking us about since you carried her this is the baby you incubated for us the timing the age everything was incredibly right on and I was in tears I was in tears learning I have been asking them a good part of my life since since I got since I was pregnant with her and uh, I, I thanked them profusely for letting me know. And I, I, I felt like my life turned a whole new corner because now I understood something. I was aware of it. Not that I understood it. I understood it, but now I, I was given that information. And uh, I asked if I could introduce, introduce myself and they said, well, it's not normal for you to do that. So if you wish, and they had learned to trust me, and they said, if you wish, just be very, very cautious about what you say and how you, you act. So I, I did meet up with her, and I introduced myself and very briefly mentioned and wanted to let her know I'm not here. I'm not causing any problems for you. I said, this was the life, chance of a lifetime to tell you what an absolutely beautiful woman and intelligent woman you became, and that's it. Nothing more, nothing said. And my whole life has changed now because I've had a chance to know who the baby was that I incubated. 
And that was it. And I never talked to her again. I never saw her again. It was a very unusual situation. And I was only hoping that she wouldn't turn negative on me, but she didn't because I was crying as I'm talking to her. So I, I didn't stay long. I just thanked her for that opportunity. And that was it. Nothing, nothing happened after that. I got pregnant. As I said, about nine months later, I got pregnant again and went on and we had our family. Um, but that was a very interesting scenario for me to go through because it was another verification or validation uh, probably about myself. Uh, I'm not, a, I don't feel I'm 100% uh, hybrid. I, have, I don't have any external uh, features uh, that appear to be uh, of anything but human. Internally, I did when I had a hysterectomy, not a hysterectomy, when I had a, uh, an appendectomy, it was an emergency, uh, doctor said an hour, hour and a, you know, maybe an hour is, you know, they go in, they take it out, they stitch you up. And it took two and a half hours. Well, it turns out, I found out later from my mother that they couldn't find my appendix. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. So that was something else that was apparent about me. Uh, and a lot of a lot of other things have to do with capabilities. Uh, you know, some people will say, "Well, some humans have that." Well, that could be true. Mine may be ex- excessive and all that. Things that I can see, things that I can hear, things that I can just know about. Uh, I mean, the seventh grade. There was no way I ever knew about Einstein's theory of relativity when I opened up that book, and yet I understood it when I read it. Now, I can't go into a room and teach astrophysics. I can't go in and teach practical physics of any kind. Um, I took basic physics as a course that I had to in school. But other than that, that's where, that's where it stopped. But I have an interest in it. So, you, 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 you know, you just go, and they just guided me the whole way. So uh, I, I was very ill when I was 27 in the hospital, uh, actually, they weren't sure I was going to last. Uh, I had uh, had had first gallbladder surgery, but the doctors and attendants never bothered to keep checking my blood. They never checked my liver uh, readings, and uh, I landed up being very ill, was rushed in an emergency to a major hospital, and they weren't sure I was going to make it through the night because I, they started losing me the night before I was scheduled for surgery, and I just managed to get to the buzzer. I didn't want to have that pain anymore, and my being said, this is not, we're not, we're not taking you now. We've got to get you through this. It's not your time. We have a lot more for you to do in this life. So who am I to, who am I to argue with my beings? I knew who they were. And I, I got through that initial, the night, but then on the operating table, it was supposed to be a two-hour surgery. They knew what to do, and I went in to do it, but it took four and a half hours for that surgery. And the reason I knew is because I always look at a clock if I have to go into surgery when I'm in the OR and they put me on the table. Then I always look at the clock again when I'm in recovery and I ask, how long have I been here? And I did that. And I asked, how long have I been here? Because here is 4.30 in the afternoon. I went out under anesthesia at 9.30, 10 o'clock. And they said, you've just been here about five minutes, five, 10 minutes. And I said, what happened? And he said, what do you mean? I said, I went into surgery at 9.30, 10 o'clock this morning. It was only supposed to take a couple of hours. Well, of course, the nursing attendant said, I don't know. Well, it wasn't until a few weeks later, after I was home, I was in the hospital a good three weeks, 
and I came home and I was fine now. And uh, the the surgeon's nurse, this excuse me, the surgeon's wife called me. They were the surgeon and his wife are good friends of my family, so she called to see how I was doing. And in the process of conversation, she said, you know how lucky you were, young lady. And I said, I think so. She said, they lost you twice on the table, and they almost couldn't revive you. So here is another issue. You know, I can say the surgeons were great and all that, but those beings were always over me. They weren't ready for me yet. I was ready to go. They weren't ready yet. So, you know, I I just have to accept it as I feel and know it was um unfortunately you know uh, a lot of things could have been a lot more negative for me and they turned out to be positive even though I was looked like I was on the way out of this life and I was willing to go I had been in a lot of pain for a good year and they just weren't ready for me so they did whatever they could to to keep me going and they were very successful so you know anyone could put what they want to that story I'm the one that lived it but I'm also the one has been, that continues to live with them in my life on a regular basis barely a day goes by when they don't tell me something or guide me with something whatever it may be that I'm doing even when I'm investigating a case of uh, possible abductees uh, with some of the work I do um, very often you know I'll get the I'll get stories I'll ask questions and um and I'm searching for an answer, and then all of a sudden I'm being downloaded with with some information. And I don't present that information as a matter of fact. I present it as it's possible that this could be what's going on because I have to be able to validate it and verify it with as many facts as I can. Now, with some of my cases, I ask them to uh, – get things checked and I asked them to get DNA and in one particular case he was very astute and he had, he was he called he he was a case assigned and he had a buzzing in his ears and he couldn't get it to stop and he got an otoscope to look in and he lit it up and he had an implant and uh, he wanted to know how to he couldn't figure out how to get rid of the buzzing and I said you've got some ETs working with you, so start communicating with them. Tell them that they've got a defective implant in your ear and ask them to remove it. And I said, it could, it could take a while for that to happen. You have to make you know, contact with them. Well, he ended up calling me about four nights later, and he said, you're not going to believe this, but the buzzing stopped. And I said, do you think they removed it? And he said, no, I checked, and it's still there. And then he called me again the next day and he said guess what and I said what and he said they put the they put another implant in my other ear so they could track me I said is it working properly and he said yes I said okay then there's nothing we can do because it's there but they wouldn't take her out they wouldn't take out because they told me when I asked why didn't you take it out and my beings told me that they, they they wouldn't take it out because it was implanted the way it was and to try to remove it would cause him problems so they were going to just leave it in as long as everything else was okay and that's what happened so sometimes uh they helped me with some of my cases and I, I've learned to listen over the years. You know, they, they've never misguided me yet. And I don't expect them to. And they know I'm ready to go at any time to be prepared. And I asked them one time, why did you train me to do what I'm doing? And they said, because this is what you're going to be doing in your next life, but on a greater scale. So I... Well, you're on the ERC team. 
You're on the yep. ERT team, or is that what yes, it's I called? Yeah. And how long have you been with MUFON? Well, I've been with MUFON about seven years. No one in MUFON knows about me. No one. I don't oh talk about it. And no one on the ERT. <laughs> well, and no one on the ERT team I have said anything to either. Um, it's it's a challenge. Um, there are some people in MUFON that I'm that I don't know. It's kind of strange. I have to question how much of everything do they even believe. But right. I you know I. So, you know, why cause an issue and why create a situation for myself that could be thought of as negative about me? I am what I am. I am who I am. I do what I do. And my mission is trained to help other people learn to help themselves on the basis that at some point in this life or another, when we have to go to another planet, and that I know is going to happen, and I'm going to be handling a lot of those trans trans transpositions uh, and uh, it's teaching people and t- helping people learn how to help themselves to have an understanding of what's going on around them because at some point it's possible there won't be anybody else to help them so it's teaching self-help and helping them understand what is going on in their lives through the anomalies that they're going through but every case is different and it doesn't mean they're all actual abductees, and it doesn't mean that they all have implants. Some of them are experiencing things. Some of them weigh on the level of more paranormal, which I separate from experiences as I know them and TJ may know them. Uh, so I, I don't want to confuse those two. Um, I hear footsteps in the house periodically. I know they're here, and I tell them, I hear you. And that's it. And as soon as they know I, I know they're there, they're gone. And I don't see anything. It's nighttime. But they have come into my house, and I have seen them. Because I asked one, if you're here, can you let me see you? And all of a sudden, he's there. And I'm just lying in bed. And I'm here at the, at the, he's here at the foot of the bed. And I said, thank you. That's all. I say thank you to them all the time. They comply. Um, thank you. It's an I believe situation. being open-minded and accepting is a big part of this reality that we're moving into. And I'd like to have you back if it's okay. And also with our ACO association and UFO association, I'm sort of where you're at in life. I've had much of what you've had happen in my life and I'm having to come to terms with the fact that I'm here now and I'm losing a lot of the people that I love, but I would like to have something in place when I leave this planet in this container uh, in place to help people and so these associations right now, Janet, we've got them coming in free, but we definitely need to name this particular thing that we're working with. And those of us have had death and dying and out-of-body experiences, and we've had to learn to walk and talk again or been close to death. And it's all coming together with out-of-body, near-death, reincarnation, consciousness, layering and learning in the metaphysical phenomenology, alienology, cosmology, and I really feel like it's time for all of us to come together and meet each other. So I thank you for coming on. We've only got four minutes. So we've only got four minutes left, so I need to get how people can get in contact with you. And then if Janet wants us to list you and you would like that, we can put you in our UFO association and you know we can have a whole MUFON group or whatever, but a lot of people don't want to do research, but they want to be known. We're calling them UFO enthusiasts until we find something better. 
But in the meantime, we have contributors, subscribers. It's free to join. And uh, Janet will just have to come up with a name, like a team that helps certain people. Because sure. Janet and I both felt like that ERT list was too close to abductees. And we were more agreement in contactees and more benevolent in knowing why they do what they do. So we need to separate all those uh, contactees, experiencers, abductees. All right. Well, I'll be well, happy can we to participate. And, Thank yeah, you. And I'll, uh, I'll be happy to participate and get in touch with you, TJ, also, and I'll give you my information directly. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, would you like to okay. leave any information here for people to contact you uh, or your Facebook or Gmail, uh, whatever I you can want? Give them, I would uh, – I, I, I'll tell you what. I have no problem with her – with having Janet list me and do that, and the answer to your question is yes, but I'm in the process of getting another email to take care of what we're talking about now for people to contact me, separate from okay. my other emails. So that I we'll I'll put it up on the website. Email. I'll put it on I'm the sorry? website when you get that to me. I will include your contact information. Just get that to me, and I will update the website page so people can contact you that way. And we will have you back for another show. We just began. One hour is way too short to cover it all, but we got done what we got done. <laughs> and it's called a lifestyle. So, yeah. Well, thank right. you very much. And, TJ, it was a pleasure meeting you. And uh, You too. Janet, uh, thank you. And, and I have a feeling too. we're all going to be very much in touch. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, I'd like to hear Thank your you husband's better. experience, too. He worked with uh, the government, as, as did I, so... He may want to come back and talk to Ken uh, tomorrow night, Friday night, if your husband's up to it. He can come on the same time, same phone number tomorrow night with Ken Johnston if he wants to. Whose husband Ken are you does. talking about? Who's your tomorrow husband. night. <laughs> you like yeah, not mine. Husband. Husband. <laughs> My husband works for the no, government. He doesn't want but uh, he worked for the government and, and in space sciences and NASA, but he would not be able to come on because it's too much to, you know, classify. So we can't oh, talk. well, we, we do that. Exactly. We have Tim Johnston that was with NASA. My husband worked at NASA. But these engineers mm. are talking about, like, when the spaceship blew up and things like that, yeah. Apollo missions. But, yeah. but just let yeah. him know yeah. it's available tomorrow night. You can listen. It's TJ Morris ET Radio Friday nights with me. And Ken Johnston on Friday nights. It's more nuts and bolts and uh, NASA and what time engineers. Same time six. Well, let's see. No, actually, Ken, it's six Arizona time. Just call this number six okay. Arizona time, and he can listen, okay, and I can turn him on and off. Same telephone okay, number, just to repeat. Good. Yeah. I'll let you get going. Okay, but, I'll let you go going. All right. Okay. Janet, I'll send, Janet, if I get approved for the new email address, I'll send it to you right away. Excellent. Thank you so much. And TJ, I want to call you. Before we go, TJ, I want to call you back, um, but I have to make another call. So we'll talk to you in about uh, half an hour, okay? All right. Okay, I got to go. All right, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Janet, for booking Annie. Thank you, Annie. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, Arizona. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody. That was Mike Penicello, Annie Heckman. Yes, is it Geckman or Heckman? I didn't ask her. Geckman. G-E-C-K-M-A-N. Geckman, yes. I have to run, TJ. I'll call you in about a half an hour. Much love and blessings, okay, dear? Aloha. All right. Aloha. 
Thank you, everybody. I've got Gekman. She said CK, didn't she? I've got H. Well, we'll have to fix that, won't we? So we'll try to get more information uh, of people that are we're going to be interviewing folks in the future. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we appreciate your time. We'll be back here tomorrow night with our ACO, Allied Command Organization, more space interesting information, the old history and people. And we don't have to talk classified, but we can talk about what we do know. And so uh, it's just sort of fun to see how engineers and space astronauts think. And Ken Johnston is uh, very good at that. So tomorrow night, Allied Command Organization, ACO. Tonight was UFO Association, so we'll see you tomorrow night at the Allied Command and Ken Johnston, former NASA Grumman employee. So look forward to talking to y'all tomorrow night. Good night, everybody.